0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. Today is Sunday, March 15th, 2020, starting at 3.22 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and I think this should be the 247th or so episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Ariel Goodman and Lisa Scheim, um, and we're going to be talking about a variety of different things surrounding Ariel's work on the Venus retrograde cycle and Venus star points, as well as her work on mythic astrology. Uh, so hey Ariel, welcome to Denver.
1: Thank you so much, Chris and Lisa. I'm so happy to be here. I love your podcasts. I love the work you're doing, broadcasting to the world, really high quality information to astrologers and all the all the archives you have. So happy to be here.
0: Yeah. Um, so you reached out to me early last month about um, you know, doing some sort of talk, and then we decided to have you out to give a lecture, and we agreed early last month to have you out to give a talk for our local astrology group, for the Denver astrology group, and then to do to record a podcast the next day. And then, luckily, over the course of the last like week or so, the um, coronavirus broke out and suddenly shut down. Like there was a state of emergency declared in Denver and in Colorado in general, and mm-hmm. they were urging people not to get together for large gatherings in order to avoid spreading the virus. So, we had to, you still ended up coming into town, but we ended up presenting the local astrology meeting through a webinar format. And you presented that yesterday on the Venus star point. So, thanks for your flexibility in terms of that yesterday. That was a first for us.
1: First for me, too.
0: Okay. Yeah. First mm-hmm. time presenting an astrology lecture during an epidemic?
1: Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> A pandemic. Yeah. Um,
0: Although now that I think about it in history, probably not the first astrology lecture that's been presented during an an epidemic, but that probably has a longer history going back.
2: First of our lifetime.
0: Yeah. Um, All right. But that was really good. That was really good talk on Venus star points. And so I wanna get into some of that today. Um, I want to also talk about some of your work on mythic astrology. We have both of your books here. So you're the author of the book, Venus Star Rising, A New Cosmology for the 21st Century. And you're also the author of a couple of books titled Mythic Astrology, Internalizing the Planetary Powers, which you co-authored with Kenneth Johnson. So I want to talk about all of these today. Um, But let's start off with some biographical information just for the people that may not be familiar with your work. Um, When did you get into astrology and how long have you been studying it?
1: Uh, 1974 was my first formal class in astrology. It had been introduced to me a year or so before, actually in Europe. I was backpacking through Europe in 1973. And of all places, I'm standing on the steps of the Acropolis in Athens, and my traveling partner at that time was a Greek mythology major and started talking to me about Athena and the Greek myths and all of that, and just that morning, I had been in a bookstore and picked up a postcard of Athena, but instead of a statue of Athena, it was um kind of a modern woman sitting at her desk in her office, and she was wearing glasses, and you know she looked like a real bookworm. she had all these books around her and studios and all that and i pulled it out of my pack. I said, oh, you mean her? And he said, yeah. And um, Well, anyway, that was 1973, and I've been going back to Greece. This will be my 19th trip this year back to Athens, and I have a special affinity for Greece and Greek mythology. But on that same trip, we started talking about astrology, and I hadn't connected the two yet. I, I mean, they were like two different areas. And when I got home from that trip, I was, you know, I had taken a break in my studies, wondering what I was going to study. I was focused on writing, maybe literature, maybe uh, psychology, and languages. Those were all areas of interest for me. And then two or three friends at home came to me and started talking about astrology. And I thought, all right. So I went to a bookstore, picked up a little book. It was called it was a paperback called it was by Joseph Goodovich and it was called Write Your Own Horoscope. Hmm. Have you ever heard of that? No. Mm-mm. Okay. So it actually was a pretty good book. It told you how to calculate based on what latitude you lived in and you know, where what time you were born based a basic wheel And so I calculated my chart from that book and read the interpretations. And then from then on, I said, this is pretty good. And from that book, I calculated myself to be Taurus rising. But when I got to the class, the first formal class, she had calculated my chart and put it up on the board that night. And she said, you're actually Aries rising because it was daylight savings time when you were born. Mm. And I was I was so already identified with being Taurus rising <laughs> <laughs> that I thought, oh, Aries rising, what's that? <laughs> but that's the start of the story. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so and nowadays you split your time between Santa Fe, New Mexico and Greece, in terms of where you live, and you've written how many books? You've written several books at this point, right? So we have the three in front of us, Venus Star Rising. And then Mythic Astrology and Mythic Astrology Applied, which is the sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also co authored a book on relocational astrology?
1: Yes, with Jim Lewis. That came before the Mythic Astrology series. We did that in the late 80s. Um, we worked on that together. I was very fortunate to be working with Jim Lewis. I feel at the time, I mean, none of us knew that he was going to pass uh, so early, but he was. Uh, one of our brilliant minds in astrology i learned quite a bit from him and right.
0: he was one of the like major astrologers or leading astrologers who passed away during the aids aids epidemic
1: actually a little bit further along actually the story was that it was from a brain tumor okay and it was in the early 90s mm-hmm. so by then or the mid 90s even by then i don't know if the aids epidemic was still a big uh, threat. Okay. It, I mean, mm-hmm. it was somewhat. I mean, he was a San Francisco resident. Mm-hmm. He did frequent the bathhouses. He did have multiple partners. I mean, this stuff is known about him, so it's possible. But actually, what has come out since or at that time was that it was a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Sorry,
0: my apologies. And
2: um how did you end up um, Originally meeting Jim Lewis or or starting to work with him,
1: um, I was going to Southern California had a lot of where I was living at the time. San Diego actually is where I cut my teeth on astrology and was some fabulous people in San Diego at the time. Uh, he would come and lecture. We had a we had a yearly I think it was a yearly conference called SWAC Southwest Astrology Conference mm-hmm. and. Um, Also, the first UAC ever was held in San Diego. Right. And so I was at all of those. But I think I met him at one of the SWAC conferences. And he was, after his lecture, he was at a table selling astrocartography maps, this very interesting uh, type of map that he had originated and um, was in the process of copywriting. And it took a special computer and program. It was one of these fold out double pages that you'd open up this big map of the world, and you would see where all your planets were and I said to him, after the first lecture I thought it was, that I went to with him, I said, "This is brilliant. I really want to work with this do you what else can I do? How can I study with you, et cetera, et etc So we continued to be in contact and When he presented his first ever certification program, he and Jeff Jower, who is now also has passed, they gave a program in San Francisco. And I was at that first seminar, and he put out a test and a certification course. And it was a pretty rigorous test. I, I actually, to this day, don't know how I passed that, but I did. And after I passed it, and we talked some more. He said, well, you are one of the few people in the world that know as much about this system as I do at this point. And there's a a handful of others, but everybody's been asking me to write a book. And so he asked me if I was interested in helping him with that. He had three planets in Gemini, and he was constantly juggling so many things, lecture tours and maps, Sales promotion, this, that, whatever, I don't know. And it just, he just couldn't find a place to sit down and, car- you know, you have to really carve out time to write a book. These, These books are not easy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure you know that from having authored a book, but
0: I mean mine only took me like ten years to write.
1: (laughs) Only ten. Okay. That's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. And it's got what, over a thousand years of history in it.
0: I mean I cover (laughs) Two to 3,000 years of history. But yeah, I mean, you know, whatever, <laughs> as one does. Uh, so you, he asked you to write that with him. And because he really came up with that, anybody that uses astrocartography that has the different planetary lines that go through the world that show you when different planets hit angles in your chart, like the Midheaven or the Descendant or whatever, that was something he pioneered and came up with
1: and he trademarked that name mm-hmm. astrocartography. yeah with the asterisks asterisks asterisk mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah in the middle and he was in a couple of legal battles about that because other computer programmers were trying to use it without without permission and all sorts of things uh, he he was involved in some very heavy legal battles with that and
0: I have to say, not a fan of writing the asterisks, uh, <laughs> even though I understand the point of that for copyright purposes.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. But, right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting now that you mentioned it, I had to, I trademarked the, um, the Venus star point. Okay. And they wouldn't let me, uh, you know, I kept sending in the symbol for Venus. It's very tedious to get a copy, a patent with the US Patent Office. hmm. And I kept sending things in over and over, and they kept refusing them. Mm. And I sent them again, and refusing, refusing. And I was like, "What do you want?" And finally, I had to hire an attorney, a a specialist um, in copyright and trademark and intellectual property Mm -hmm. law, to do it for me. And the first time he sent it in, it 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 went through like that. So I guess he knew what to do. But um, I've also had. I've also seen the Venus star point all over the internet without, you know, it's supposed to be all I asked for was just acknowledge the book or that it's a copyright of Sophia Venus, but most people don't do that. They just, you know. Yeah. So, um but Jim I I, I learned from Jim. I'm not I hope <laughs> that I'm not spending my life in any kind of legal battles with people using it improperly mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. cause sure um anyway
0: so when when was that book published
1: 1989
0: okay so that would have been one of if not the first book on astrocartography mhm okay so that was really then you were involved in the popular, popularization of that as a technique which has since become a really popular technique especially since you can use it on astro.com and i think a lot of people have their first exposure to it there where I forget what it's called, but their relocational astrology section is based on that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And it's so interesting to think or hear about, you know, the inception of all of that because after a few decades, then it just becomes part of like, this has always been around. So it's interesting to hear when it wasn't.
1: He, when he started it, I mean, he, he was. There were other people who had written about like locational astrology mm-hmm. or relocation astrology, the the idea of taking the chart of where you were born and relocating it to another city. Mm-hmm. Right. But for the most part, they were just reading that chart, the twelve houses, how the planets were. He actually I think the brilliance of what he introduced, well, to a couple of things. One was angularity the idea of you know he studied with uh, some sidereal astrologers that were very big on angularity and i mm-hmm. forgot their names right now but um they're pretty well known or i'm
0: trying to think in the there's historical... like historical there's like Cyril Fagan there's i don't know Brigadier Firebrace and like other random but those are more towards like the middle of the 20th century
1: yeah. Um, no, there were some people still writing in the later 20th century, but um, I forgot who they are now. But he was kind of combining that idea of angularity. And of course, he always said, I I moved 19 times in 20 years or something. And he realized that each time he would be in a different location—again, he's a Gemini with all this Gemini—that uh, he 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 felt different different parts of himself, and so the theory of angularity was really strong. And then, secondly, his idea of parans, you mm. know, pa- and it's a longer word that none of us can pronounce. Maybe you can. Yeah, Arantel and nala or something.
0: Yeah, it's something like that. That's pretty close.
1: And so, what that is is that there are certain longitudes and latitudes of the world where. When you have one particular sign and degree at the midheaven, you'll have something else on the ascendant-descendant axis. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay, and so those aren't don't easily change. They're they're kind of fixed in a lot of places. So if you happen to have planets that aren't necessarily square, but you have these angles and you have a planet on each one on the ICMC axis and one on the ACDC axis. Mm-hmm. Even though they may not have any astrological aspect relationship with one another, they're considered a, a very strong paran, and they're both highly operative in that in that location mm-hmm. and they bring two things in your chart that may or not be together already right
0: right and so um and one of the main things like you're saying that he really innovated was not just relocating a chart, but plotting the lines of where planets would be angular on the entire globe um, in that visual format?
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, have you had much experience with relocational yourself in terms of relocating or going to different places and seeing how that has worked out in your own life? hmm Okay.
1: I mean, I basically came to this area, the Rocky Mountain Zone, because my Mercury Line, what he would call the Mercury Line, was here. Okay, and I wanted actually I wanted a place to go and do some writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I came to Santa Fe. I there was a year or so that one summer, I think it was 1988, that I was really debating between do I want to live in Santa Fe or do I want to live in Boulder? And I spent some time in Boulder, quite a bit of time, and I loved it there and. But Santa Fe eventually won over, and but yet they're still down the same line of longitude, practically straight up and down I twenty five, and that's where my Mercury um, line is on the IC. Now his interpretation of Mercury on the IC is that I would be that people would be delving very much into family ge- genealogy and roots and things like that, and maybe writing about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do that, but what happened immediately when I got to Santa Fe was I started writing and exploring Greek mythology <laughs> and uh-huh. writing about that. So, mm-hmm.
2: it must be an ancient family roots. <laughs> right. right. Well, and I'm curious, too, with all of your connections to Greece, since you know your first trip there, do you also have interesting lines oh, around yeah. there? yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: There's another technique though. The thing about Jim was he was very fixed on that just using the 10 planets. He didn't put in the nodes, he didn't use Chiron or the mm-hmm. asteroids which which I do. And then there's another technique. I think it was begun by Michael Erlewine called local space astrology. And from local space what what that looks like it's a, it's a different projection of the planets. It centers over your birthplace and then the planets all fan out across the world like spokes of a wheel into whatever direction they happen to be pointing and you have to be within a like a 50 mile radius of that local space line once it gets way out there further away cuz at your birthplace they're all together you could walk around in a circle and they'd all be there right mm-hmm. but the further you get the more distinctive they become and from my birthplace the place that I'm Going to be living in Greece soon, and the place one of the places i've always loved, my moon goes like just like somebody shot a bow and arrow, and it just boom it landed in that town mm-hmm.
2: oh that's interesting,
1: so the moon is one of them there also I use um I have Athena rising over Athens, Pallas Athena the asteroid in the relocation chart. Mm-hmm. Um, I have Pluto and Mundo rising there. And I have on the geodetic map, which I also use, and I look at all of these, I have my nodal axis right over Athens. Um, mm-hmm. So that's been a place I've gone quite a bit to. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So you incorporate asteroids into your re- relocational work?
1: hmm okay. Oh, yeah.
0: Um, and asteroids is one of the things that you also were an early adopter of as well to some extent. And that was because uh so last month I did the first asteroids episode I've done with Demetra George, and she said that her entryway into asteroids was through Eleanor Bach and publishing the first asteroids ephemeris, and you had some connection with Eleanor Bach's work as well, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that little book. The the little little book, a little hardback book, I think I still have it in my library. um, Of asteroid, the the four asteroids, the four main ones, and I didn't know Eleanor at the time. I think the person that I learned the most about, besides Eleanor's book, was Zipporah Dobbins in L.A. Um, I was going to some of her classes and. She had a research week that she sponsored at her home in the early to mid eighties. It was an ESAR, actually. It was an ESAR research research week that I attended, and she had a really good take on put, you know, weaving the asteroids into the chart. And she had a really good interpretation model called the twelve letter alphabet, uh, where she would take Mars Aries in the first house and say these are all letter one. Okay, and do this evaluation of charts like how much of letter 1 do you have, how much of letter 5, how much of letter 10, etc. Yeah, that
0: was, uh, that's was that been like attributed and because the origins of that go back to much earlier and started being popularized by Alan Leo and people like that, it's often said to be earlier. But Zip Dobbins was really the main or one of the main promoters of the 12-letter alphabet and she named it that but it, that was really the turning point where that started to be like a major interpretive technique in Western astrology through her work and through her systemization of that.
1: Mm-hmm. And I can tell you over the years, it's been 46 years now that I've been in astrology, I think sometimes I think that people are confusing the sign, the house, and the planetary ruler. Mm. I don't Sometimes I'll say, you know, they're interpreting, they're interpreting Scorpio, but that sounds too much like Pluto, mm-hmm. yeah, right. or the eighth house.
0: Well, I mean, that's usually though then attributed to. I guess one question I have then is sometimes I hear that when Zip Dobbins taught that system of the twelve-letter alphabet, that it was supposed to be like a teaching tool for beginners, but that you were still supposed to understand that there was a differentiation between planets, signs and houses, but then when that model took over, that that distinction kind of got lost. That it, this was just a teaching right, tool, right? Is that true, or do you think that's an accurate uh, statement? I or? mean,
1: I don't know because I didn't keep up. I mean, that was I had already had my basics in astrology before I met with Zip, mm-hmm. but I hadn't been using that technique, and I just thought it was an interesting way to look at charts, um, but. When Ken and I, I, we didn't originate this analogy. We wrote it in the book *Mythic Astrology* a few years later. But um, we were talking about how people outside astrology always want to know about the signs, but we, the people inside astrology, actually look at the planets first as the primary, because we look at the planets as the actors. If you were to imagine a theater. Theatrical production, the planets are, and, and asteroids are the actors, right? Mm-hmm. They're the starring, the stars. And the signs are the costumes, and the houses is the setting, the stage setting. Mm. And so, if you kind of can keep it in that context and think about that,
2: mm-hmm. and I don't
1: know who originated that idea, but we definitely agreed with it and thought, well, this is how we see it. Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. Okay. Um, So that might be a good segue then into that work. So in the 1990s, you partnered up with Kenneth Johnson, who's actually been on the podcast in some of the early episodes. He hasn't been on for a while, but he's one of my favorite astrologers, especially due to his background and versatility with both Indian astrology and Western astrology. Mm -hmm. Um, But you guys got together and wrote two books on mythic astrology, and I was hoping we could talk about that a little bit today. Because that was kind of a new thing, even though there was some basis in using myth as an interpretive pr- principle in some ancient traditions, when we go back and read some of the ancient texts, it's not quite as like clear or quite as consistent that they were using it as we thought. but it seems like this became a really common interpretive principle in the 20th century, especially coming out of like the works of Carl Jung and Liz Green and other people like that. Um, but maybe we could talk a little bit about how myth is used as an interpretive principle in astrology and what that approach is about?
1: I think for me, it began with the idea that going back to Eleanor Bach's book, that to introduce the four goddesses to the world um, into the astrological world as asteroids, the first four asteroids that were discovered, that it was really delving into her into their mythology, and I realized that because I had had these own quest, my own questions when I began my first astrology class. Why is Saturn interpreted like this? Why is Jupiter way over here like that?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Who decided that? Why, you know, all these why 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 questions. So the idea that well, we haven't really looked inside of all the planets and their myths and their mythology. I mean, some people would say them, but mostly signs and planets tend to be keywords. Most of the like astrological, what do you call it, cookbooks available around the time had a lot of keywords. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to really tell their stories, like how did the planet or the sign get that attribute or What was the story behind the story and all that. So we did that. But I think the other thing, Ken and I were crossing paths before we met without even knowing it. We both lived in San Diego. We both lived in Santa Fe. And I was going to Santa Fe about the time he went to San Diego. And he settled in the same area of San Diego and got a lot of clients that had previously been had their charts read by me and they would say, Well, what are these little symbols on the chart, like Ceres, Pallas, Juno, Vesta? And he said, to me at that time when we met, he said, Well, I, I needed I had to go study them so to answer these clients' questions. But Ken was a Greek mythology major. He had already had a degree in that. Mm-hmm. Um uh from one of the University of California state systems. So he already knew quite a bit about myths. And when we finally got together and I said, look, I've just picked up… for Myth was swirling around. Joseph Campbell, Liz Green was was writing beautifully about the myths of the, the planets, and Joseph Campbell's series was out. And just in the astrological, Carl Jung's st- Everything was exploding in myth around this time, mid to late 80s, early 90s. And I said, I had picked up Edith Hamilton's book on mythology again. And I remember, and, and one of the first lines in the book said something like, In the beginning, there were 12 Olympians. And then suddenly that had a new ring to me. Oh, well we have 12 signs. There has to be some kind of connection here. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to set out and see if I could how we could bring the 12 Olympians and the 12 signs together. And I asked I I told Ken about this and so you know, we kind of went back and forth with with it. We we didn't have email then. We didn't have we did have kind of Computers, clunky computers that we wrote on, but it was kind of that that dot dot (laughs) right, you know, Uh uh, little dot dot things. Anyway, um, but we carrier
0: pigeons and stuff, you know.
1: (laughs) But the beauty of the book is that he would write his section, let's say on Jupiter, and I would write mine, and then we'd put them together, Mm. and we'd take out all the things that were that we had both said, and then. He was a good editor, too. He wove them together into a you know pretty seamless chapter then that um sometimes afterwards, when the book was published many years later, I would go back and I would forget now who wrote that Was mm-hmm. it him or my and but our ideas were so you know they were so similar we we didn't disagree on right. on anything sure um so yeah, so that's how mythic astrology came up and um actually the only one in ancient in the ancient writings that he had come up with at the time and this was before you know the um project hindsight and all the translations were going on mm-hmm. found a text by Manilius that talked about the gods he Menilius wrote more about the gods than the planets. He did write some astrology, but it was more about the gods. And so he was giving rulership to the twelve signs of the twelve Olympians: Artemis and Apollo and Hermes and mm-hmm. Zeus.
0: Right. Um, so, so the premise of the of mythic astrology. Then, I mean, there was already a lot swirling around through the works of people like you said, through Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung, that myth and the myths that different cultures used could be an access point for understanding broader broader archetypal or psychological dynamics that permeate our culture or that manifest in different people's lives in different ways. And that was already a pre-existing sort of notion in and of itself. But then what you guys started doing was applying mythology to the planets as an access point for understanding the archetype of the planet better by investigating the myths associated with the things that that celestial bodies were named after, mm-hmm. and that was already the the primary access point for how people were trying to understand the asteroids like Ceres and Vesta and Juno and so on and so forth. But you started applying that to the other areas like what is the myth of Kronos or Saturn or what have you, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we delved into a lot of the stories about that. And Ken, as you said, he was involved. Very much in Vedic astrology at the time, too, so a lot of stories from Vedic astrology also Hindu mythology are also in there.
3: Mm-hmm. and
1: we have some things from other cultures where we'd pick up something about Egypt or obviously uh, Babylonia or you know other other places, and even talk about how Rome how the gods who were named after the Roman gods pretty much They had their own gods before Greece, but they pretty much incorporated the Greek gods and myths and the Greek pantheon into their system Mm -hmm. when Rome became, um, uh, when Greece was, you know, kind of sliding down and Rome was kind of rising to power and all of that. Mm -hmm. So we talked about that too. But for the most part, it goes back to Jung's archetypes, you know, that we, and that's how the book. The first book was named "Mythic Astrology: Archetypes in the Horoscope" or something like that. The, the name has been changed in subsequent printings. The subtitle has been changed, but it really is "Archetypes in the Horoscope."
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I'm curious: have, Were you already starting to work with clients around these types of things, mm-hmm. um, oh, discussing yeah. these mythic oh, sure. stories? Okay.
1: I never write anything that I'm going to publish until I've tested it on. Sure. Right. Yeah. Myself, family members, friends, clients, yeah. right. whatever.
0: What is the approach? So part of the approach though in sitting down and delineating a chart is if you see a certain planet or a celestial body that's prominent, then you might talk to them about or explain part of the mythology of that planet and the mythological story. And that sometimes in telling that story to the person, it's going to resonate with them a certain way if they have that, that planet as prominent in their chart? hmm Okay.
1: A popular one for women is um, the series, uh, the Demeter-Persephone myth of the mother and the daughter. And if they have a series, the, the asteroid series, the planet Pluto, uh, the signs Virgo, the signs Scorpio, Moon in either of those signs, or series in any of those signs, in any kind of sort of combination thereof. I don't know. You know, the chart is kind of like a little—it's a soup, and you have to kind of extract certain kinds of ingredients out of it. it and anyway, when I would see that theme, I would start um, the story of Demeter and Persephone and most of the time, almost all the time, I would get the response, oh my, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, just even the other day, somebody I had a Sun conjunct series person come in that had somehow, oh, it was square Saturn, exactly square Saturn in the chart. And right away, we started talking about the mother and the influence and yeah, she said, Oh, don't even start with my mother. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like that. So but mm-hmm. yeah. I
0: mean, really quickly, what is the myth of Ceres and Persephone, or what's the short version of the myth?
1: The short version is that Demeter, the goddess of earth and the goddess of the grain and harvest, uh, had a daughter, Persephone. And Persephone was out in the fields picking flowers one day, and suddenly the earth opened up and outshot Pluto on Hades, his chariot, his dark horses and his chariot, and he grabbed her and he took her to the underworld and she came screaming um, all the way there. And Demeter didn't see the act, but she knew immediately something had happened and her daughter was missing and went missing, and she went into this very long grief process where she refused the earth to grow any more the earth could not produce any more crops because she was mourning for her lost daughter and finally zeus had to intercede and find out and they knew all along that it was hades that had come and taken the daughter and so they sent hermes down to the underworld hermes was one of the few uh figures in mythology that could enter and leave the underworld unscathed and uh he went down to try to bargain and all that. And the idea was that if she hadn't, if Persephone hadn't eaten any of the fruit of the underworld, she could come back to her mother. But she had eaten some fruit of the underworld, the pomegranate seeds. And the pomegranate is a fruit that is associated with, with her. Um, and so they struck a bargain. Six months uh you can be with your mother in the upper world and six months in the underworld with Pluto. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Now, Persephone evolved and grew that transformation to the underworld. She became queen of the underworld. And many people feel that—I mean, this is all through Greek mythology and even our stories—that there was a world of uh, deities in place Uh, that had been more um, female-centered, mother goddesses and um, female goddesses that were in charge of all these different departments of life. And when Greek mythology came in, you'll see repeated stories of rape, abduction, uh, capturing, overtaking, and it's usually uh, the god overtaking the goddess in some way, and then claiming that territory as as his. For instance, Zeus procreated with many different goddesses, but also many mortal women um, to produce, you know, offspring everywhere. That may have been one way of saying that now all the offspring were going to be related to him, and it was going to come through patriarchal. Um, Line rather than the matriarchal line, so a lot of that was the culture changing at that time, but a lot of these stories are involved with that. so so the idea with back to the idea of the story, Ceres, Persephone, Pluto, uh, whatever combination of figures you have or signs with that, there is some inkling of that story has probably played out in your life. Mm-hmm. In an important way, and that's what I was trying to get enough information and feedback from people at the time to say yes, this is this is true." I mean, Athena gives you a different story. She's the father's daughter. Mm-hmm. you know um Persephone is the mother's daughter mm-hmm. and there's just different ways that you. That you interpret them, Juno Hera was was the partnership. She was the wife of Zeus, and so you have a strong Juno. You have a strong urge to partnering, and there a a a deeper story with that is about Juno giving up her own power to marry power. Mm -hmm. So that often shows up in charts as well. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: But yeah, once you just start looking and walking down you know, walking through the archetypal landscape of the chart, the stories kind of emerge.
2: Yeah. and It was really interesting to me looking through your books. One of the things was um, that you were talking about not only looking at the stories of the planets that were prominent in the chart, but um, potentially counterbalancing things were, that were either too weak or too strong in your life. And so it's not just that something would have to be prominent in your chart for it to be an important story for you to pay attention to.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Then the second volume, Mythic Astrology Applied, we tried to work with that. Like it's called Healing with the Planet. So, what if you have this planet overstated in your chart and you want to tone it down a little bit? Mm-hmm. Or, what if you don't have it at all and you want to bring it in? Right. So, we were looking at more, you know, magical kinds of things, you know, invocation and dream work and gemstones and healing things that could be how to set up an altar for this particular planet or mm-hmm. or archetype to bring it into your life right. or you yeah. know.
0: Right. Or I think I'm thinking of another scenario where somebody doesn't have a certain celestial body or a certain myth prominent in their birth chart, but then they go through, let's say, like a transit, like a Pluto transit, and then suddenly that archetype is manifesting in their life. And if you were to tell that story or tell a story, a myth related to that, how they would perhaps really resonate with it at that point in their life um, versus at other
1: times when they might not. Mm-hmm. And that is one idea uh, that you're just saying has reminded me of over and over again, I've seen this, uh, a transit for instance, of Pluto to Ceres. Mm -hmm. And Pluto's a long term transit. It takes a couple of years to complete. Mm -hmm. Really, if you're going to use even a tiny orb, one or two degree orb, takes a while. And that has come down to really clearly mean this is a custody battle. You Mm. know, this is the fight between and I've seen that in a lot of people who are getting divorced and the fight is over the children.
2: That's or the really child,
1: yeah. yeah, and sometimes even the dog,
2: oh well, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: okay, so, yeah, um, I'm trying to think of other mythology, but so you also said at one point when we were talking about this last night that obviously that was the access point, the primary access point that astrologers were using very early on for understanding the asteroids um and understanding their meaning, but you started applying that to the traditional planets as well, so, for example, Mercury or Hermes and some Mm -hmm. of the myths associated with Hermes, Mm -hmm. since Hermes was like the messenger of the gods, Mm -hmm. end up being relevant in understanding the astrological role that Hermes plays as well, or that Mercury Mm -hmm. plays as well. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, my favorite story to this day of Hermes is that you know he's he's this clever little baby. He comes, he's born, and right away he knows everything. and um zeus was actually quite proud of how smart he was so you know such a youngster and so smart and clever and all that but one of the things he did he was the brother of apollo the younger brother of apollo and he stole apollo's golden cattle sacred cattle okay they were like really protected but hermes was able to sneak in open the gate and let all the cattle out and so as not to get caught Hermes decided to walk backwards so that the footprints looked like they were going a different way. And uh, so it took a while for them to figure out you know, who was the thief here. And then when they finally figured out it was Hermes, they marched him up to Mount Olympus and Zeus said, oh, you're such a clever child. (laughs) So he didn't give him any punishment, but they had to make a bargain. They had to—Apollo and Hermes obviously had to to make up, and they exchanged um, sacred totems at the time, uh, Hermes had carried the lyre, remember the the musical instrument. he had happened the moment of his birth, he happened on a tortoise, and he said, "Oh, there's a tortoise shell. I'm going to make a lyre out of it." <laughs> and um, so he had that, and Apollo had the healing rod, the caduceus, so they exchanged at that time, and then Apollo became the god of music. Uh, with the with the lyre and Hermes carried the the double serpent um, Caduceus. Asclepius carries the single serpent um, rod, but Hermes carried the double. But what I like about that story is that I think of it every time Mercury goes retrograde. That Hermes walked backwards to fool everybody into thinking that somebody it wasn't him right. that took the cattle and he is that little trickster when he's retrograde.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So so right there that brings in the like mischievousness uh, this it doesn't as often come up in modern but especially in ancient astrology this like mischievousness as well as the inventiveness to mercury as astrological significations that can manifest in a person's life.
1: Mhm. Mhm. Yeah.
2: And I'm curious when you work with people with these mythic stories is the is the biggest idea for people to recognize that their that part of their life is a piece of something bigger or is it to change something by knowing that story
1: Um ideally both Uh-huh but just recognizing sometimes that it's a universal story mm-hmm. can take the sting the personal sting out of it for you mm-hmm. Like not thinking you're the only one that's had to endure something like that, right? Or go through that, and it's also interested in gotten people interested so much in reading those myths and learning their chart more deeply, Mm -hmm. because I mean I'm sure all of us astrologers have said this, you know. You saw all that in my chart, right mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and very personal things in their life but um but I think if you tell the story from the mythic point of view before saying before approaching it, like, "Oh, this is what happened to you, or did this happen to you even
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, without like going right in there, but just saying, "Well, when I look at your chart, there's a story." That I want to tell you. And it's about, you know, this. Mm -hmm. And how do you relate to that? And, you know, the answer is story of my life. Right. Right. So, because
0: it's one of the issues that astrologers run into is like you're saying, most astrology books just have a list of significations of possible manifestations of the planet. But the reason they have that is because you can't. Describe it's difficult it's not possible to describe the archetype because the archetype of the planet is something by definition as an archetype that's transcendental or is like a sort of hovering above or behind reality, and then we see manifestations of it in these manifold different significations of in- mm-hmm. individual specific things, yeah, but um myth is a useful tool then because it's probably like one level up. As an intermediary that's getting closer to trying to describe the archetype by describing some of the stories and some of the themes in broad mythical or, or legendary sort of terms. hmm
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and these archetypes, I think with the planets because you're fleshing out their character. They have a full rich character. They're actually a living breathing kind of person almost, mm. rather than like you said, the keywords, because which keywords there's a hundred keywords for this sign or planet, which right. ones apply, yeah, yeah,
0: like especially Mercury. that's an interesting point though, because then it's almost treating them planets as like intelligences or things that are mm-hmm. that there's some principle out there that's like alive and existing, which does bring you back more to that almost like um the magical sort of approach to astrology as well,
1: right. Yeah and i mean archetypes are simply like imprints of of an image probably not I, I think i used to describe it probably not a verb it would be a noun you know it'd be a thing or a person or a image of something tangible mm-hmm. not not an action kind of mm-hmm. but there's you know think about the archetypes so What's a banker? A Wall Street banker is going to be what archetype comes up in astrology for you on that?
2: Mm. To some degree, Saturn maybe or Capricorn in terms of like big um, structures that underpin like societies. That's not the only one that comes to mind, but that that's the first one. Okay, yeah. So
1: you would look for that. Or the traveling salesman. What Mm -hmm. would that be?
0: I mean that's like Hermes or yeah, Mer- Mercury to yeah. I me. Mean. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Mercury. Or um, the woman that's spending all this time, or man in their garden, harvesting their, you know, crops and mm-hmm. and doing all this and paying it close attention to the seasons. By the way, that Greek myth on Demeter and Persephone really was a way to really define the seasons because we have winter. You right. know, when Persephone's mm-hmm. in the underworld, we have winter, and basically, we do have winter. And the, you know, if unless you're in the tropical zones, you have summer and winter, right. and so you have the two extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, you know, to illustrate that, but it was also to illustrate the cycles of a person's life, and and one of the conclusions I came to with a lot of heavy type of Persephone Demeter kind of thing was. Do you feel like, are you a person that feels like you can really work hard and really get the job done, but then you need to take some time off and really go into retreat for a few months Mm -hmm. or whatever? And these people would often say yes, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that, that, and, or if they didn't do it, but felt the need to do it, I would illustrate the myth as just saying maybe it's a good idea for you to carve that into your schedule you mm-hmm. know the the taking care of yourself as much as you know just because i think that's another important uh element that we can take from that story but i do find now that i've been living in europe part time i do find that americans are tend to be very overworked and always thinking about work and always going 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 and always wanting this well, always wanting the graph to go up right yeah. and they don't do well with you know the internal interior like you know going back down mm-hmm. like i use the moon cycle as graphs of the moon to be you know when you're the most extroverted time in your life when you're more introverted and when you need a little more private time right Yeah.
0: It seems like um, another theme that came up in the Demeter story was um, like grief and themes of grief.
1: Very much so. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: All right. Um, So let's see a sort of transition point for that might be um, Venus and some of the mythology surrounding Venus, because eventually that was a transition point into something you got into in the following decade or two. Um, with your work on Venus and especially dis- the distinction between whether Venus is a morning star or an evening star. And I think there was some like other ancient um, maybe Mesopotamian myths that were kind of connected with that. I don't know if that's something that you, you brought in.
1: Well, no, there's always been a couple of stories of Venus's birth. Um, mainly the main Agreed upon birthplace and island that claims her is Cyprus. Uh, And that is, Aphrodite first came to Cyprus. And she did come from the Near East. She came from the older cultures. But she was first named because Cyprus back then was a Greek part of the Greek Empire, the Greek world. And so she was named Aphrodite, she of the sea foam. Um, And the the stories that she came floating from Cyprus, oh, you know, Greece took her from Cyprus and claimed her as their love goddess. But even today in Greece, you don't find temples honoring Aphrodite. You really don't. Not the way Apollo and Athena and Zeus and some of the others. Uh, you will really have to go to Cyprus uh, to really find um an, an island, a country steeped in the Aphrodite mythology. Hmm. So she was said to have been born there from the okay, backstory, Kronos and Uranus, the castration of Cro- of Uranus by uh Kronos to prevent any more regeneration, because he was terribly mistreating his children, right? And Cronus stood up with the sickle and said here. And the the genitals fell into the sea, mixed with the the foam of the sea, and first arose the three furies, and then came Venus. So, you know, in an act like that, of course you're going to have, you know, the furies arise. Okay, and then came Venus, well, Venus has two sides like she has two sides to her she's um a dual energy, and part of it you know she's not just all light and love and grace and beauty and all the things that 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 she is, but there's a darker side of Venus too,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and so you can find that in some of the furies, you know the the um uh, mistreated feminine or the raging feminine parts that haven't been given voice or expression or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's her main story of birth. She comes from Cyprus. She um, is called Aphrodite. She, uh, that's the island in the far, far east of the Greek world at that time. But there's also an island in the west that's called Kythera, and they claim her birth also. But she, there's another myth where Zeus mated with Dion, an earth goddess, and the earth goddess is uh, more sensual, more earthly. So this goddess Aphrodite was called Aphrodite Pandemos, and she was more like the Taurean, interested in fertility and growing things and producing children and Know that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas the celestial goddess Aphrodite from Cyprus, you know, because it came from Uranus's severed genitals, it's Urania. She's goddess Urania, Aphrodite Urania, the celestial goddess. So uh, there's a bit of difference really in the interpretation when you have, we were talking about this yesterday. The morning star versus the evening star, the the night Venus, the day Venus, and I have we have a slide here from the Cyprus Museum. I don't know if you were able to get that.
0: Oh, um, I don't think I have that up. You mean of the two
1: statues? Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty rare depiction of. The two Aphrodites that Mm -hmm. I haven't really seen. I mean, the world is used to seeing, like Venus de Milo or the Botticelli Venus, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, but we never see. You know, there's there's a couple of other depictions from, like one of her is a warrior goddess actually holding a bow and arrow and like an almost like an Amazon looking Aphrodite, Mm -hmm. and then there's one of her that that's the one right there on the on the right with the two goddesses yeah
0: let me see, see if i can it.
1: pull it up there she is okay. so that's from the cyprus museum in nicosia and the one on the left i don't know if you can make it out but she's wearing a darker cloak the one on the right is wearing a, a like a white Cloak. She's more the Demeter, Earth goddess, the marriage, children, family, the Pandemos goddess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whereas the one on the left is wearing a darker cloak, she, and and the cloak actually, if you zoom, if you can zoom in, it's got stars on it. Okay. So it's like the celestial, the night sky, mm-hmm. Venus, mm-hmm. the one that's we were talking about. That's the Evening Star.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, so
1: she's in charge of the starry parts of the world, whereas the Earth goddess is uh, Venus is in charge of the earthly parts of the world.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Um, well, so that's a good transition point then into what you got into in the 2000s was really researching and getting into the astrology of Venus and finding that there was much more complexity there and there was a lot more going on where Venus mm-hmm. was a much more complicated and detailed astrological significator and had much greater power in some ways than astrologers would normally um, attribute to that as a significator in astrology, right?
1: Yeah. I was actually a little bit fed up with interpretations of Venus. It was so superficial and it didn't I felt like she's more than this. You mm-hmm. know, she she alone in the astrological pantheon, makes us connect and feel, and really, really, she's so much more than what we're making her out to be. And not just about relationship, but about what's you know inside of you and all of that. But it was quite by accident, just like astrology kind of found me by accident at that time. Uh, the Venus star material. Uh, came to me. I wasn't looking. I had just come out with the second Mythic Astrology book, and I think you know from being an author yourself that you're married to a book when you're working on it, and you don't have any other life. You're just so immersed in it. And that second Mythic Astrology book had just come out, and I thought, oh, I can have a life again. I can come up for air. I can do thi- I can go to movies. I can go out. I can just not having to be my head in this book the whole time. Right. right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> never will never write another book again. I think it was my immediate.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, right, personal. exactly. Yeah. And then suddenly comes Venus in while I'm researching just a little bit of her retrograde cycle back in 2004 and the whole star thing drops into me and um, like, oh no, I you can't really say no to Venus, can you? But I did search a lot of astrological literature at the time and combed the bookstores. We still had bookstores back then. Well, you're gonna ones. have to
0: explain to our younger viewers what, <laughs> what a bookstore is, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well we had this great one in Santa Fe. Uh we have a really wonderful one in Santa Fe that's a local, a couple of locals that are still there. The Ark was very metaphysically and, and spiritually uh involved. That's where we get all our astrology books and things and calendars. But the um, there was a big box store, what they call a big box store called Borders, and they were all around the country, really. Oh, yeah. We, had, a, went, we had Borders. We yeah. had a yeah.
0: boor, uh, Borders in Boulder yeah. up until it closed.
1: Right. Yeah. So, Borders, I don't know if it was just Santa Fe or if this was the rest of the Borders, too, but they had a, a gigantic section in our store in Santa Fe on metaphysical books and spiritual and, um, Alien theories and outer, you know, everything you can imagine because there's an audience, big audience there for that. Um,
0: One of of the best pictures I ever took was at a Borders. Uh, We took a picture of Lisa standing in front of like an entire bookshelf of like 2012 books. (laughs) In like 2010 or 2011. 2008,
2: when, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, when rampant. that whole
0: thing was ramping up, mm-hmm. uh, which was pretty funny.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I bought all of those at Borders before then, mm-hmm. just to see okay. what the experts were saying. Yeah. And a few years ago, when I was cleaning out my bookshelves, I saw these books on 2012, and I thought, hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do I do with yeah. this? <laughs> yeah.
0: That was a whole thing. I'll have to do an episode on that at some point. Ironically, that though ties into our topic because Mm -hmm. the 2012 thing supposedly driving partially from Mayan astrology was partially based on the Venus retrograde cycle and the Venus transit where it went across the face of the Sun uh, in 2012. And that was one of the last ones they recorded in their calendar Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Right. Yeah.
1: And who knows why that was the last one, because they do happen every 125 years or so in pairs of eight years, separated by eight years. But I was thinking maybe it was because that was the last one of the of the millennium, but it was actually the first one of the new millennium. But as I said yesterday, I don't quite agree totally on the dates of our calendar numbers, 2012, I don't know where that is starting from. Although when the Mayan wrote that, they were we are they were already on the same calendar, I believe that we're using today. So okay, not sure why they chose that one because there have been Venus transits alternating between Gemini and Sagittarius for over a thousand years, and in other signs before that, you know.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but to get back to it. Uh, not to get too far off track, but part of your access point for this was the distinction between Venus as a morning star and Venus as an evening star, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe we could define that first, like what that looks like in a chart or what that looks like in astronomical terms.
1: Okay. So in a chart, if you have Venus ahead of your Sun in a zodiacal position ahead of the Sun,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's an evening star, like the chart for today. If, We know it's an evening star right now. We're seeing it at night, Mm -hmm. shining very brightly. So if you look at today's chart,
0: so this is it's four twenty six here in Denver. So it's a little bit before sunset. Let's move it to about sunset. Okay. So here is the sun is at twenty five degrees of Pisces today. Mm -hmm. So we'll move the descendant to twenty five Pisces. So Mm -hmm. that's right at sunset. Whenever this whenever the Sun hits the descendant, that's when the Sun sets underneath the earth, and it becomes night. And
1: so you can see above that is Venus in the night sky shining pretty brightly.
0: Right. And if we
1: could see Uranus with the naked eye, you would see that the two of them have been pretty close. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. So people just need to know that when the sun sets, when it hits the descendant and it moves underneath the western horizon, at that point it becomes, it goes from daytime when it's all bright out, it goes to nighttime. And as soon as it becomes nighttime, the stars come out and you start to be able to see the stars in the night sky again. And one of the things that you can see at this time currently is Venus will appear as a bright, sort of white, twinkling star up there at 11 degrees of Taurus. Uh, before eventually it sets at the Descendant just a few hours later. So because Venus becomes visible at that point shortly after sunset, we call it an evening star. We say that it's currently in its evening star phase because it comes out basically in the evening after sunset.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. And the ancients called it that. They didn't call it a planet, they called it a star. I mean, she technically is not a star, but now that I've done all this research on the Venus star, you could call her a star because she does kind of have that orbital pattern with Earth where she makes that beautiful pentagram. Mm -hmm.
0: Sure. And we'll get into that later. So the opposite um, though is that later this year after she goes retrograde, uh, she will switch sides and become a morning star, right?
1: Yeah. If you want to do a chart for about June, Well, June 3rd is actually the Kazemi, the star point date. But if you do a chart for about, let's say, June 10th.
0: Okay, so what I'm doing is I'm moving the chart forward. We're into May now, Mm -hmm. and what happens is that Venus is gonna slow down and it's gonna station retrograde around May 12th, May 13th at 21 Gemini. Yeah. And then it's gonna start moving backwards in the signs of the zodiac and the degrees of the zodiac until eventually, the Sun catches up with Venus and the two can join each other at 13 degrees of Gemini around mm-hmm. June 3rd. Yeah. So that's important because that's for you, a critical point in the Venus retrograde cycle is the conjunction with the Sun. Right. And that's what you call the Venus Kazemi. Star when
1: point or Kazemi because that's the moment she switches from being a morning star to an evening star or an evening star to a morning star. The minute she kisses the Sun, changing, you know, she's moving on the other side of the Sun now. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. So in this instance, when she's retrograde, she's going from being an evening star to being a morning star? Right. Okay. So then after that point, um, if we keep moving forward, Venus is still retrograde and stays retrograde for longer until eventually it slows down again and it stations direct at about 5 degrees of Gemini around June 24th, June 25th. Mm -hmm. So at this point, if we Again, take it to sunset, Venus will not-
1: Not be visible. She's under the horizon. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. here we see- But if you take it to sunrise, that's where you'll see her in the sky, right?
0: Okay. So here's sunset around June 25th, around 8 PM here in Denver. Mm -hmm. The sun sets when the descendant hits about four degrees. When the descendant hits four degrees of Cancer, the sun moves under the horizon. We see that Venus is already in the sixth house, so it's already below the horizon at sunset but if we advance the chart forward several hours into the next morning just before sunrise we see let's see for example at 4:24 a.m. on June 26th 2020 the ascendant will be at 17 degrees of gemini and the sun will be at 5 cancer so the sun is still below the horizon so it's still nighttime out it's like an hour or something before sunrise but venus Is at five degrees of Gemini and it rises up over Mm -hmm. the ascendant and over the horizon. Mm -hmm. So, in the early morning hours, just before sunrise, you'll be able to see Venus as this bright, white, twinkling star that rises up over the ascendant in the early morning hours. And this is why it's called a morning star Mm -hmm. because it can be seen or it rises in the the morning sky. Yeah, got it. So, and um,
1: dazzlingly bright. Venus is the brightest object in the night sky after the moon and so i think the ancients in naming her the morning star and the evening star i think then they knew it was the same planet mm. i mean they had there were different cultures the mayan were fascinated by venus they had entire books written just for venus now most of their literature has been burned was burned when the spanish came over and and invaded But there are some existing texts, um, mainly the one from Dresden, the Dresden Codex, which talks about pages and pages of Venus sightings and watchings and risings and settings and where. And actually, they called it, the Mayan called it the five seasonal risings of Venus. Mm. And even though they weren't consecutive risings, they were you know it'd be a rise and then a set and then a rise and then a set, the way the pentagram works, uh-huh. but they they identified it. The Greeks knew it was the same planet, one in the morning, one in the evening, but the same planet. Um, so most of the cultures that had any literature or information about it wrote about that, so but I was getting back to that borders book story because the thing is. I was combing every astrological text I could find to see, has anybody written about the pentagram? Because I actually was trying a little bit to get out of writing the Venus book because the whole idea of the pentagram was so overwhelming to me but so interesting at the same time, and I felt like I didn't know what it meant. I knew there was a pentagram of Venus, but I really didn't know what it meant. But if anybody's written anything about this using those interpretations and star points and things like that, I don't have to really write this. But I couldn't find any astrological literature about it. I found it in the metaphysical literature that was mainly very popular at that time because of there was a whole surge of literature that came out following the publication of The Da Vinci Code. That had to do with the Knights Templar and the, you know, these ancient bloodlines and things like that, and masons and masonry and all that. And evidently, the masons, um, which go back to the founding fathers of our country and even before that, but they all were. Their meetings, they march or process in some kind of formation of a pentagram. They they know about venus they knew about venus and they honored venus in their secret teachings or whatever it was these secret societies all you know had this so i had a lot of the literature i found at borders were these authors who were um talking about venus and the venus pentagram from that point of view so i got a lot of interesting literature about that and i even found you know some controversial things like but possibly true the the rosary beads and i i have that in the book the the, the rosary beads from catholicism mm-hmm. the beads have so many beads and the the larger beads represent the moon going around mm. and then the smaller one at the bottom represents the venus cycles and um it's like it was all broken down to, to show that it actually had to do with that. But the other thing about the Morning Star is that um, when, when she's that Earth goddess, Morning Star, closest to the Earth, you'll find that she's got her, um, she's, she's um, well, I think it's her proximity to the Earth mainly, that she's closest to the Earth at that conjunction where as she's apogee or farthest from the Earth at her evening star conjunction.
0: Sure. Um, so maybe we should touch on just first the distinction between morning star and evening star and some of the keywords or some of the concepts associated with that. And then we can get further into the other points in the cycle with respect to the conjunction in the pentagram. Mm-hmm. So you have a slide that sort of talks about the morning star versus evening star phases in Venus, and these actually being distinct phases that have different meanings depending on what side of the Sun Venus is on, right?
1: hmm
0: Okay. Right. So what are some of those meanings?
1: Well, okay, those were different names. Like the first line is Venus, phosphorus, Lucifer. Lucifer actually means the bringer of light. So as a morning star, she's announcing she's announcing kind of the sun is going to rise here comes the light mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. the evening star venus was called um venus hesperus and you've heard of evening vespers mm-hmm. okay so that's the other thing that that term comes from the evening venus so there were two different terms to her they actually you know so they it's one goddess aphrodite but in the in the uh concept of looking at Venus as the star, they were actually seeing it as two different beings, like, you know, having a dual role, basically. Mm-hmm. And then I can't read all that, but um, oh, Aphrodite Pandemos is the earth goddess. Okay. Mm-hmm. Pandemos. Um and uh Aphrodite Urania is the celestial goddess, like, you know, as she's part of that from Uranus, right? From the sea. From the sea foam. Uh, I think that the morning star has a little bit more yang energy and the evening star Venus has a little more yin.
3: Okay.
1: Um, I do say also that you have to look at where in the cycle they were born because if they're born very close to the changeover and it's something new to them, uh, that they might still be from the prenatal. Uh, the whole nine months, which is where most of the star points come from, is in there. But I was going to read that passage from Abraham, Ibn, uh, Ibn Ezra, Ezra, Ibn Ezra. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, let's see where was that? I think it was page forty-five. Okay, so so he says he was a twelfth-century Hebrew astrologer. He explained how the combination of being light in body and movement, and at the height of its circle above the earth, makes the planet's influence more subtle and soul-related. It has a less notable effect upon earthly events. We're talking about the evening star, Venus. And in the consideration of temperament and physical description, it describes the body as sensitive and lacking strength. However, there is a greater level of spiritual purity, and the mind is more receptive to inspiration and higher wisdom. As she pulls away from the sun and descends from apogee to draw close to the earth, the strength of her influence upon all mundane matters increases. So that's how he described the difference between her being at the height of the heavenly summit. And then as close in as possible to the Earth. Mm -hmm. That, and Robert Handis said this: that the Morning Star Venus is more like Athena, who was very involved in affairs of state and decisions of state, politics and law and governance and all that business, strategies, warrior, uh, you know, um, advising warriors. Um, the Venus Urania is not concerned normally with things like that. They're if they're political, maybe they can be certainly, but um, that's maybe not their strength. Mm-hmm. Sure.
0: Okay. And I think uh, Ptolemy says that he says that Morning Star Venus is like masculinized, is the terminology he uses in Greek, and then Evening Star Venus is feminized. Um, but you use the terminology of more yin versus yang. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, yang I think is a more active, the active principle. You know yin-yang in the Chinese in the circle where you have the, the, the yin and the yang, kind of they're always alive, they're always within each other. they Everything is made up of a certain amount of yin and a certain amount of yang, but I would consider yin more related to the feminine principles of receptivity, okay, and the yang as more Mm action-oriented. So I see the morning star Venus as being a little more Mars-like, Athena-like, Mars-like, more action-oriented, and the evening star Venus as being a little more receptive and um, Libra-like. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, so that's a major distinction that's used in traditional astrology that's really important that you're trying to bring back through this work. And then that in and it of itself is like a transition point into looking at the broader retrograde cycle with Venus and especially the conjunction which you put a lot of emphasis on which is what degree uh, and what sign does the Sun-Venus Kazemi take place in or the Sun-Venus conjunction take place in and that's what you call the Venus star point. Mm-hmm
1: yeah and that is because it's also related to a bigger star pattern. you know, there's five of them in any given time in history. Um, and so we might have one star point we were born under, but um, the way this, the way this book came through, and, the, and and as I kept working with it, the uh, ideas and the way it evolved. Was I'm trying to find a picture of that Star Man.
0: Why don't we show the Venus star, uh, the pentagram for those that aren't? Oh yeah. Introduce the concept Mm of the Venus.
1: Mm -hmm. There it is. Yeah.
0: Go retrograde, and we'll trace a a sort of pentagram in the zodiac.
1: So there you've got the heart and the star of Venus in the five. There's the five retrogrades, and it happens in an eight-year period. Those five retrogrades, which is from one retrograde to the next, I call the retrograde or the Kazemi with the sun the beginning of the five hundred and eighty-four day Venus synodic cycle. So, what we're we're coming to an end now until June third of the last one Mm -hmm. that began in late October of twenty eighteen. That was the Scorpio retrograde. Mm And if we go back here, this is a good one, because we the last retrograde was Scorpio. Yeah. And this one is going to be Gemini. See how the arrow moves from Scorpio to Gemini? Yeah. And then the next retrograde in 584 days will be in Capricorn in January of 2022. And then 584 days later, it will be in Leo. It's a morning star retrograde. And then it will feed over to Aries by 2023 or four, and then back to Scorpio again. So that's how you trace inside the interior part of the circle. Mm -hmm. And these signs actually have relationship energy. Kind of, I, I have a whole section of the book on the relationships on the Venus star. And I have the three kinds there's the twin star, where you're both the same sign. Being a star sign. Mm-hmm. And then I have the creative star, which is one arm to the next arm. On the outside of the circle, it's like the arms of the other star. And then we have the karmic relationship, which is uh, the legs, the two legs, because that relationship goes through the interior of the circle,
3: mm.
1: and it goes through the heart of it. And it's from the head to the to the legs. It was actually more like an evolutionary The name that came was like the evolutionary um relationship, but there was already so much evolutionary astrology out there, and I actually didn't want it to be confused with that so mm-hmm. um, I kind of didn't know what what to call it and then eventually it was like, okay, as I started looking at certain charts, especially political charts, there were a lot of presidents and their wives, or important political people over time, that um that had the karmic relationship on the star to mm-hmm. one another. And what I felt like with most of them were that they almost had some kind of a contract to come in and do this together, mm-hmm. you know. Like the President and the First lady, that this was a team, that it wasn't just you know a, oh, let's get married and maybe one day you'll become president right. <laughs> you yeah. know kind of thing. Um, and I felt like also that uh, in in researching personal cases, that the karmic stars are kind of there with each other, pretty much committed for life, even if they do separate. They have a hard time separating from one another. They usually have something that kind of keeps them together. Mm-hmm. But the um, creative stars, they can come and go and separate and not, and they're pretty good with one another. Mm-hmm. As far as uh, we were talking about Harry and Megan yesterday, and they're on the creative star relationship. She's an Aries star point, and Harry is a Gemini star point. And so they have that kind of creative um, relationship where they're supporting each other. But at the last UAC, I gave a a talk on um, the royals, on relationships on the Venus Star, and I used the royals as examples. And one of the interesting things about that was that both Kate Middleton, Prince William's wife, and Meghan Markle, Harry's wife, are airy star points, as was Princess Diana. Hmm. And so both boys, in a sense, married something of their mother. Right. You know? Yeah. And this shows up a lot in family. When you do family groupings on the Venus star, it's very interesting to plot the different points of the family and see where they fall. Hmm. Interesting.
0: Yeah. And we didn't know this until yesterday when you did your talk, but it turns out that Lisa and I were born under the same Venus star point, which right. is. Our prenatal Venus retrograde was in Gemini Mm -hmm. because we were born eight years apart. Right. You're eight years roughly before me. Right. (laughs) Um, And then we also figured out that I started the astrology podcast under another similar Venus retrograde in Gemini in 2012, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. So that was an interesting one. And then we also started the Denver astrology group very close to Mm
1: -hmm.
0: uh, Venus, going over the same one in In 2008.
1: 2008. Yeah. So. There, that's a, a pretty good example of how it works for people.
0: So, let's define that though. Um, because you have so you have one um, diagram here, and this shows the um, different Venus retrogrades and it shows where what degree Venus stations retrograde in and then what degree it stations direct in because then mm-hmm. it goes retrograde. And what's the span in terms of how many degrees Venus covers when it goes retrograde? Like um, 17, 20 degrees, maybe?
2: Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Something like that. So, for example, uh, the one that's coming up in Gemini is going to station around 21, and then it's going to retrograde back to like five. To five. Yeah. Yeah. So, that gives you an idea of the range of like retrograde station to direct station. But what you really focus on is the halfway point between that, where it conjoins the sun mm-hmm. and whatever degree that is. So, for example, the upcoming one is going to be at 13 degrees Gemini. That's what you call the Venus star point. Yeah. And what you look at specifically in natal charts is you look at what was the Venus retrograde prior to your birth and what was that exact degree that the Sun and Venus conjoined prior to your birth. And whatever that is, that's your Venus star point.
1: And sometimes it will be the re- the last retrograde before birth, but other times it wasn't retrograde because remember, Venus and the Sun conjunct one another. There's an in, uh, uh, another conjunction in between the two retrogrades mm-hmm. that that produces the evening star. Mm-hmm. So that's the where it's going direct. Okay. Yeah, you know, and that's the evening star comes out of the direct conjunction. And what I found really interesting about this, besides what I found written in the books from. You know, some of the ancient literature was that um, if you just visualize it, Venus is retrograde when it meets the sun in the interior conjunction. And what comes out of that is the morning star. So they're both coming towards each other with great anticipation, but they meet for just that one moment and then they're gone again. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going in different directions. The sun keeps moving this way, but Venus eventually is going to turn station and come back up, but it doesn't reach the exact conjunction with the Sun until the Sun is all the way around on the other side where Venus then becomes the Kazemi evening star. Mm -hmm. But when Venus, then they're both moving in the same direction, but they're moving slowly together for a really long time. So this is one of those slow love affairs that can just stretch out forever, you know, they're only kissing maybe on that one day, but they're still so close to each other. They're tracking each other, really. Or is it the, the morning star conjunction? They're just meeting in the middle of the night, doing that thing, and then they're <laughs> and then they're moving on. You know. Sure.
0: So, in part of that, with the two different conjunctions, so there's a conjunction between Venus and the Sun when uh, Venus is retrograde mm-hmm. and that one is when venus actually when venus is retrograde and conjoins the sun it actually passes over the face of the sun or is actually closer to the earth um at that point when it's retrograde and conjoins the sun whereas when venus is direct and conjoins the sun venus is on the other side of the sun so it's actually further away from the earth and blocked by the sun at that point
1: right and the only time you're really going to see venus passing over the face of the sun is like 224 and 2012 when we had the actual Venus transit. In this case, they're lined up by longitude, but they're not necessarily lined up at the same latitude mm-hmm. where right. you can actually see it moving across. Um, so that's those are the special ones, and those are the ones that only happen like once a century. So um, that
0: was what was so important about 2012 was yeah. that Venus actually passed across the face of the Sun? Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and you know, we won't have the next one until 2117. Okay. So, just to put it in context for people, the mm-hmm. next
0: one where Venus passes across mm-hmm. the face of the and sun and that
1: will be in Sagittarius. That again, twin transits, two of them separated by 8 years, but um and the last one before the 2012 and 20, 2004 one were in the late 1800s, that was also in Sagittarius. Mm-hmm. So,
0: Okay. So in terms of um, this though, you would recommend that everybody should uh, figure out what the conjunction was between the Sun and Venus that took place prior to their birth Mm -hmm. and what degree that was. And then that degree becomes a special degree or a sensitive degree for you in your chart.
1: Right, it does. And I'll say this for the evening star people, even though we're evening star, I think all of us in here are evening stars, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I still think because the start of the Venus cycle is at the morning star and it begins at uh, 584-day cycle, I think it's still important for the people like us that are the evening star to not only look at our own star point, the one prior to our birth, but where did that cycle begin? Where did the 584-day synodic cycle of begin? So where was the last retrograde actually hmm. also? Hmm. Um, and I think those two points in the chart are, are pretty sensitive and interesting. And I think it's the same thing for the Morningstar people. They may have had the retrograde before their birth, and so they know that. But what are they coming to in terms of like the full moon Venus? you know what's the evening star for them going to be, mm-hmm. and what's that relationship about? And I've kind of started putting both those points in the person's chart to see, okay, how are they working with um like where are they coming from? Where are they going to? Mm-hmm. like almost like an evolutionary um, flow mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Okay. So, in terms of the upcoming one, the upcoming one, as we've said, is going to be at 13 degrees of Gemini. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there'll be one after that that's at 18 Capricorn, like what, a couple of years later? Mm -hmm. And then it'll jump It'll be
1: January of 22. Okay. Mm
0: -hmm. January of 22. So, it jumps every- a year and a half, or almost a yeah. couple of years. And between
1: that, there will be an Aries evening star, kind of in March of twenty one.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So, um, and what happens? That's interesting. That you pointed out is that these degrees, it only moves by like a degree or two every time it comes back, right? Mm-hmm. Every yeah. eight mm-hmm. years, right? Okay. So that's really important because then it means it stays in these signs for really long, extended periods of time. Mm-hmm.
1: Stays in a sign for a hundred years, but it might stay on your planet for eight years to twelve years because mm-hmm. it's so slow moving.
2: Right. So you were talking yesterday at one point about if it does do that in your birth chart, like over a significant placement or like a, a personal planet, that that can be significant with regard to like what you're doing during those mm-hmm. eight years.
1: Yeah, and I would say it's it really lights up. That part of your chart, your life, Mm -hmm. that planetary archetype, going back to archetypes again. You know, if it's your Mercury, a lot of times I've seen where it's going over the person's Mercury and they're doing all their, uh, getting all their degrees, their postgraduate degrees, and really uh, the bulk of their studies are happening then or Mm -hmm. when they actually figure out what they really want to do. And, um I've seen it go over the moon for people where I think when Julia Roberts for instance had it pass over her moon she had she gave birth to her twins then oh, interesting yeah huh. okay. yeah wow. mm-hmm.
0: okay um yeah so pay attention to that as a sensitive degree and then sometimes that what you were saying earlier is that it can connect together people if you meet somebody that has the same prenatal venus Star point sign mm-hmm. or even yeah. degrees?
1: If you're born four years apart from one another or eight years apart from one another, you're most likely going to have the same star point mm-hmm. because it returns to the same sign every four years. It returns to the same sign and phase every eight years. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so Venus goes retrograde in the same sign in roughly the same degrees every eight years. Mm-hmm but then in between that 8 year cycle like in f- 4 years after the first one it'll do the same thing through the same sign but it'll be direct
1: yeah but it'll also be very in very close proximity to that degree that same degree okay mm-hmm. yeah so
0: yeah so venus is just activating because this is so such a tight cycle it's activating the same degrees in relatively um regular succession of like eight and four years. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting because usually uh, we think about Venus and all the inner planets as being such quick transits that are just really brief where especially if Venus is direct and moving average or moving fast, it's just something it'll go over a degree in a day or two and then that's it. So as transit studying astrologers as a timing technique, we're not used to paying too much attention to Mercury and Venus because they move so fast and their transits are so brief. But this really shows us that there's much longer term cycles that are involved in Venus that can activate parts of the chart for much longer periods of time than you would think.
1: Yes, exactly. And this really gives the. Like I was saying earlier about mythic astrology, how you're actually fleshing out characters rather than just keywords. Mm-hmm. This gives Venus a, a much fuller, richer presence in our life and operating behind the planets as a backdrop with the star clock. But just for instance, I, I wanted to do the last few degrees of the Venus Kazimi the last few years. So in 20. Let's go back to 2004 when, when they made their, conjunc- their first transit. That was at 17 Gemini, 54 minutes, retrograde. Four years later in 2008, it was 18 Gemini, 42 minutes, direct. And four years later in 2012, it was 15 Gemini, 45. In 2016, it was 16 Gemini, 35. And now here in 2020, it will be 13 Gemini 35, and four years from now in 2024, it will be 14 Gemini 29. So that 14-29 Gemini in 24 compared to the 15-degree Gemini in 2012, that's a whole 12-year period that if you have something 14 or 15 degrees, really, of any sign, but especially the mutables, and especially Gemini mm-hmm. or Sag, that's like a twelve-year period of really hot Venus action, mm-hmm. <laughs> Venus star action on your planet. <laughs> yeah,
0: I have uh, Venus at at fifteen fifteen Sagittarius. Oh, okay. Yeah, really, uh, hot hot Venus Venus action. Hot Venus
1: action. I love it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um. Yeah, so uh but that's also short not far after the sign of my midheaven at 5 Sag, so it's in my placidus or quadrant 10th house. So things involving career as well as groups, mm-hmm. organizing or starting the Denver Astrology Group under one of those in 2008 and then right. starting the astrology podcast in 2012 under another one of those. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. As it keeps going over those degrees.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just mentioning to Lisa yesterday but the studio was done a year earlier. I mean, if you'd have waited till twenty twenty yeah. to move in here, uh, you would have been right in sync with that cycle again. <laughs>
0: That's true. Well, we'll see what happens this year. We got the, so they get the Venus retrograde coming up. Yeah. Um, that later this spring slash summer, so that should be interesting and should be important. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any other instances of? Used an analogy that I thought was really interesting when you were talking about it wasn't necessarily closely tied in with the astrology, but those instances where Venus those instances where sometimes like the partner can eclipse the, let's say, more mm-hmm. prominent partner where you were talking about, so for example, there was Prince Charles, but then when he got married to Diana, like most of the attention was on Diana, or more recently when you
1: All of it.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah. Sure. Charles was so eclipsed by her.
0: Sure. Or, or more recently with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, um, it was funny in the media that I remember reading a story and they referred to Harry as like Meghan Markle's husband or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. instead of like Harry's mm-hmm. the right. ro- royal and she's um, right. you know, the mm-hmm. new addition to the family, but you were sort of making an analogy between that and venus where sometimes those conjunctions with venus especially when it's retrograde are those rare times when venus suddenly like gets in in the spotlight because it it is closer to us and it is in the way of fully viewing the sun and as it passes over especially during those close conjunctions the face of the sun in some ways takes greater prominence in some ways
1: mhm well, we were i think we were talking about the idea that um There's combust, a planet moving within 10 degrees of the sun being combust. So you don't really see it at all. You can't see it. So, Mm. what's its effect? Is it strong? Is it, you know, is the sun's rays, you know, burning it out? And then there's Kazemi, which is right up close, you know. And in this case, Charles brought Diana right up close to him. You know, nobody was paying attention to anyone in the court or anyone around Charles before that. It was Charles, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then here comes Diana, and now suddenly she's the Venus and she's eclipsing the sun. Mm-hmm. And the same, obviously, <laughs> has been happening with uh, Harry and Meghan. Sure.
0: Yeah. So I like that. That's a really good analogy. And so you use this not just for. People to identify like what their phase of Venus is, whether it's a morning star, or evening star in their birth chart, as well as not just what their Venus star point is, but you also, because this is a slow moving cycle as it goes through different signs of the zodiac and it stays in them for so long, also sometimes apply it to like mundane astrology to see what signs are going to be activated for entire several decades at a time in human history.
1: Yeah. For instance, I'll give you a simple one right now. Venus, the Venus star, like okay, so this there's a star on the front of this book, I don't know, mm-hmm. but you can see it, okay, you can see it, okay, for this what I would call the head of the star to rotate clockwise, right, this way, mm-hmm. to this arm of the star, and for each point to move to the next point, that's two hundred and fifty years. It takes for that to happen. Okay. So then for that head of the star to move all the way around to come back to itself, that's 1,250 years. So there's greater cycles within this Venus star. And what the 250-year cycle obviously matches the Pluto cycle, right? So I do think it's an evolutionary kind of cycle like Pluto and how people interpret Pluto, especially in evolutionary astrology. But um, I, I think Pluto's also o- often been given the, um, the phrase death and rebirth with Pluto, right? Right. So I actually think because it's synced with the Venus star cycle that the Venus star is the rebirth, that's mm-hmm. the new life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that Pluto is actually associated with creating new life as much as it is ending old life, mm-hmm. and that's its job, right? To end what's you know. Now the United States is coming up to its Pluto return. Yeah. It's coming up to its two hundred fiftieth anniversary in twenty twenty six. Well, guess what? In twenty twenty six, the Venus star point returns to the actual the same degree. Star point of the u s birth chart, which was one degree Scorpio, huh,
2: that's a really interesting coinciding of mm-hmm. those
1: two things, yeah, so both are happening at the same time and mm-hmm. um and so when I wrote this book, I was saying, so we're kind of in this place now in history where you know, like when the Boston Tea Party happened, and when they decided to throw overthrow you know throw all the tea into the sea and Decide that they were going to overthrow the overlords that were taxing, taxing, taxing them. You know, Americans have had this fierce reaction to taxation ever since that event that created our country. And every politician and every election, it's about taxes. Are we going to raise taxes or are we going to lower taxes? It's all about taxes. Mm. It's a Scorpio star point. Mm the country is you know and you think about scorpio and its association with wealth and other people's money and who's getting the money and who's you know all of this i think that's an important feature but i've also been saying that i really feel like our country partly because of the pluto return but also the venus star return is ready for a whole new constitution a whole new set of circumstances it's like it's it's crumbling it's fault that system that was created two hundred and fifty years ago is not serving us exactly correctly in present day, and it's time for something new,
2: yeah. And I think a lot of people are anticipating um some needed you know deep seated renovations coming up both with the Pluto return and then um I guess the return. After that, because the Constitution wasn't written or finalized until about a decade later, right, so right. it's this sort of ongoing process over the next decade yeah, or so, yeah,
1: yeah, and I think that's when the Constitution was written, see that was the last of the Scorpio star points, and and we're ending the Scorpio star point period now and going into Libra mm. and when our Constitution was actually written was when we had two air signs then on the star, Gemini and Libra so I think. We had a lot about equality and, and, you know, all of that, mm-hmm. right?
2: Yeah, at least in name. <laughs> in name, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In ideal.
1: <laughs>
0: so here's one of the other diagrams that you have that just shows this shift of those Sun Venus conjunctions from a period between 2018 and 2026. Mm hmm. And just shows how they go in a counterclockwise direction in that slow gradual shift of like a degree or two right. over the course of that um, almost decade-long period. Yeah. And then over a much longer span of time on the left, we have the shift over like a 40-year period versus how long it takes or how far it goes about a sign almost over a 100-year period.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting when you plot that on your chart. If you draw these connecting stars over on on an overlay over your actual chart, Mm -hmm. you can actually see how it's sequentially every four years, the heartbeat is, you know, the drumbeat or the heartbeat is activating that particular house or sign in Mm -hmm. your chart or, or planet or even stellium. People that have stelliums, especially stelliums in Scorpio or Leo. Or Aries, any of these signs that the star is currently in, Mm -hmm. it's going to go over all of them in your lifetime. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. That's a really good point. So, and people could see when at some point in the future, even that those conjunctions are going to go over sensitive points in their chart, which might even be 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years in the future. Right. So it's sort of interesting as a predictive technique in that sense because it is a long term, slow moving thing. That will just happen like once in a lifetime. It's not something that will repeat necessarily.
1: Mm-mm. Not not the conjunction. Not that actual aspect. Mm-hmm. You, it it will. Different star points will either trine or sextile or square or oppose your planets, mm-hmm. but not that same star point wouldn't. In fact, when you look at the star, you'll never see an opposition. Two signs in opposition on it together. Uh-huh. That's just the you know because the the pentagram really the this is based on the fifth harmonic of astrology the circle divided by five, and so what you get with these star points are closer to the quintile, the biquintile, and a couple of the signs move in a transiting quincunx or inconjunct to one another. Now I know the ancient astrologers actually didn't consider the inconjunct uh, or or any of those the quintile or the biquintile into what you would call legitimate aspects. I don't know (laughs) what you would call them, legitimate or illegitimate. But um, that's what's working on the Venus star, Mm -hmm. those aspects. Okay.
0: Because it's jumping between inconjunct signs?
1: Yeah, like the Leo Capricorn are moving at about the same degrees, but they're um, moving sequentially together. They were born together and they will terminate together. Mm -hmm. Aries and Scorpio the same they came in together they will terminate together. Mhm. Okay. So there's certain partners on the star sign and it's made me rethink relationships too when people say I'm a Gemini or or I'm a let's say an Aries married to a Scorpio and they'll jokingly say well you know none of the none of the Astrology books or columns think that's such a good match but but actually it is it's the karmic star match on the Venus star so it's, it goes beyond just you know whether you're compatible or not mm-hmm. there's kind of a soul relationship there that needs to be examined and experienced
2: mm-hmm. interesting
0: So through something like this it could be activating those two signs with the Venus mm-hmm. uh, retrogrades um, even those those are signs that are not making a major aspect to each other. Right. Okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I'm trying to think about other points that we meant to mention during the course of this, but we've actually covered uh, quite a bit today, I think. Mm -hmm. Were there any other-
1: really have. (laughs) Yeah. Stray points
0: about the Venus um, star point or Venus retrograde cycles that we, we should have mentioned. Of course, we have this one coming up. We've identified the degrees which are 21 Gemini to 5 Gemini And then the Venus star point or the conjunction or Kazemi is going to be at 13 Gemini. So I guess part of what you would say is that if you have anything around 13 Gemini, that's going to be really important if you have like a personal planet located at at that degree and that you might even look back in four-year increments about what happened four years or eight years earlier because there may be some connection between events that were happening back then and what comes up during this upcoming Venus retrograde. Exactly. And does but does that par- the
1: main but the other thing that we haven't really spoken to is they you know what does Venus retrograde mean mm-hmm. so many people think it's like Mercury retrograde and it's not it's just nothing even similar mm-hmm. so your um,
0: like um computer won't go on the fritz during the Venus <laughs> retrograde
1: <laughs> It well this time it's in Gemini so I can't yeah, make any okay. promises <laughs>
0: What what Bye. is How do you conceptualize Venus retrogrades?
1: I think the Venus star point is such an engaging heart energy. It's such a deep heartfelt energy, heart and soul kind of energy that I think it's times when Venus goes retrograde, especially if it's going across one of your close planetary points, um, that you're really examining and rethinking um, either something about your value system or I hear a lot of people say, I'm not getting what I want out of this job, even though the pay is good and I've been staying here forever because the pay is good, but it's just it's not my heart work and I don't know if I can stay another day. Mm-hmm, right. Um that is often something that will come up during a Venus retrograde. Mm-hmm. Uh reevaluating a certain relationship or even a contract you have with somebody, like an agreement. A partnership that's business related, or a lease agreement, or some kind of signed agreement that involves the exchange of money, or goods, or you know something like that. Right. So often partnerships can come under question at that time who you're who you're connected to and partnered with. And I also hear really good stories about it where people will say we decided to. Um, recommit and redo our vows, and it so happens that it's in a Venus retrograde period and it's hitting one of or both of their charts, you Mm -hmm. know, pretty strongly at that time. So it's it's renegotiating agreements based on, you know, I know we said this when we made this agreement eight years ago, but could I add this clause in there now Mm -hmm. because? This is how I'm feeling now. Maybe what's missing from it, right? Or what we can add to it. So I think it's really a time when we examine our personal feelings, our values, our, our net worth, our, you know, the second house and the Taurian aspect of Venus has always been people say it's self worth. But so much of that I feel like, um, They've confused it and they've made it into net worth instead of self worth, mm-hmm. and that they don't feel as worthy if they don't have a certain amount of net worth. Because again, in our culture, people are very eager to know what do you do, okay?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that kind of puts people in, you know, it, it automatically puts people in kind of categories, right? Of well, this is valuable, or this is more valuable than that, you right? Know? Yeah. Or you know, um, say, oh, why come home to mom and say, I just met a guy I fell in love with. What does he do? You know?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, he's a janitor at our school. You know? And she's like, oh my god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you say, oh, he's studying to be a lawyer. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. you know it's just that automatic response but it has nothing to do with the character of the person or
2: right. what he's
1: all about or she is all about
2: mm-hmm. yeah and you you had also mentioned the sort of archetypal um 40 day giving up things mm-hmm. voluntarily mm-hmm. as a sort of venus retrograde kind mm-hmm. of parallel yeah and
1: think of venus retrograde as your 40 days of lent astrological lent uh-huh. <laughs>
2: Right. Yeah.
0: So giving up like like indulgences.
2: Yeah, or pulling back. I mean, that just kind of reminded me of how we often talk about Venus retrograde in terms of you know maybe while you're doing that reevaluation process, you're temporarily pulling back. Yeah, and not doing the usual, enjoying the usual, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, and I mean it's not a half to thing, but I when in that research when I was researching the Venus cycle and all that all those writings from the Knights Templar and the Masons and this and that, they talked about all these practices that were 40 days, and the Old Testament has it, the New Testament has it, Buddhism has it. Uh, in Greek Orthodox Church, they have a 40-day, uh, several things that come after the person dies, there's a 40-day ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, and on and on, I know we could keep researching, There's there's lots of 40-day practices in religions but where did that come from mm-hmm. and i'm thinking even though the venus isn't always exactly 40 days it's around 40 days i think if you eliminate the two stationary days cuz it's often 41 or 42
3: uh-huh.
1: the whole cycle i think you would get that 40 day where it's actually moving backwards but not not stationary right you know yeah that makes sense
0: okay So 40 days and 40 nights of Venus retrograde are coming up uh, here. Build a boat. Build a boat, okay.
1: (laughs) And don't let other people want it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, social distancing in your arc. Right. (laughs) That'll be the next episode of the Astrology Podcast.
3: Yeah.
0: All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining us for this today. I really appreciate it. It's been fun having you out to Denver and you'll have to come back again sometime when we're not having a <laughs> p- epidemic. Yeah, p- pandemic. yeah because uh, I
1: missed meeting all those people yesterday at the Mercury Cafe. But yeah. I'm glad you were here in cyberspace anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was fun. We we took the I meant to mention earlier, we took the lead of the Washington State Astrologers Group, which also switched their meeting at the last minute to an online webinar and we did ours with the same audience. But just with them at home. And that worked out really well. Um, and I think I'll release the recording of that as like an episode of the Casual Astrology Podcast and then put this as the main episode of the Astrology Podcast. Um, people can find out more information if they're intrigued about this from your your book though, right? Which is titled uh, Venus Star Rising.
1: Yeah, the one we've been referring to this one.
0: There it is. Okay. And let me put an image of that up on the screen. Um, People can also figure out what their Venus star point. I meant to mention that is um, because you have a handout on your website. So either they can find out what their Venus star point is by pulling up the ephemeris, which we joked that we may have to explain what that is to some, yeah, some like, people. Yeah, like what's a
1: bookstore? What's an ephemeris? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an ephemeris. That's
0: even more complicated because it's a book. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, you can look it up in ephemeris just by seeing what the conjunction between the Sun and Venus was prior to your birth. Otherwise, you can look it up in your book, um, Venus Star Rising. Um, on pages 80 through 81, you have a table that shows all of the different ones. Or you can go to your website, which here it says it's Venus star rising, but it's actually now changed yeah, to- Yeah, Sof- we
1: migrated that to sophiavenus.com.
0: Okay, so go to sophiavenus.com and then click the Venus star point link, I think. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little link at the top that says, how do I find my Venus star point? And it gives you a PDF that shows you um, a yeah. list of, of, of all of them.
1: Yeah. And you're usually gonna go to the closest one before your birth rather than the one after your birth. Even if you were only born three weeks later, you would probably go to the one before your birth. But okay. in certain I have certain exceptions to that when you're like within a day or two or just a few days of the next one. Mm-hmm. Especially if Venus is already retrograde in that sign and the sun is already in that sign and they're gonna meet in a few days, but they're already in that new sign, I I would say that gives a lot more weight to that star point coming. Mm-hmm. But yeah. for most people it's the one previous.
0: So it's kind of like the um like prenatal lunation in mm-hmm. that yeah. sense which right. is the prenatal sun or moon conjunction this is the prenatal sun venus conjunction
1: mm-hmm. yeah and that's the other question a lot of people have what if you were born a week before the next eclipse or lunation
3: mm-hmm.
1: or, or for lunation, you could make it two two days before or something, but for the eclipse, you could say a week before, do we still go back to the prenatal one, or what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. you know right
0: yeah, I mean, you still I think you still use the prenatal one is how they did it. Here's um the PDF though from your website, right, so that just shows you how to find your Venus star point and then you just look up. Um, what the closest one is to your birth, and mm-hmm. then look right before that, basically. So if we yeah. scroll down,
1: yeah, if you just pick a date for a random date there.
0: Well, so mine was I was born November first of nineteen eighty four. So I go here and I see April third of nineteen ninety five. Nineteen eighty five was one, so I got to go before that, and we see June fifteenth of eighty four. There was a conjunction at twenty four degrees of Gemini, so that would make that my Venus. Um, star point and Uh it looks like it was direct at that point. Yeah,
1: so you're an evening star.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. So direct is always gonna be evening star and retrograde. If it's retrograde here in the prenatal, then that's always gonna be the opposite.
1: The morning star. Morning
0: star, Mm -hmm. okay. Okay. Yeah, That's pretty quick and pretty easy then to figure that out. Yeah, it
1: is, right. And that's that's really the beauty of this. If you start working with it, if you start putting it in your chart or the charts of other people, you'll start seeing its connections immediately and how it works for you and how important events in your life have been synced to it.
0: Hmm. Okay, cool. And yeah, I was just looking through past dates, and it's just really weird because I started the um, astrology podcast then later in June of 2012. Mm-hmm. And then it looks like we've got one right there, June 5th of 2012 at 15 Gemini. There <laughs> it is. So it's right coming the,
1: back to you. Right, right
0: <laughs> under the Venus. And so
1: this year, I don't know, another form of communication. When did you publish your book?
0: Uh, that was in um, what February of 2017, mm-hmm. I believe.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Is that right?
0: That sounds right. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: but 2016, before that was the last star point.
0: Oh, let me take a look at that. Dan. So let's see. So um, 2017,
1: February. February. Yeah, because it didn't change to Aries until late March.
0: Uh, so you're right. So June 6, 2016 would be the prenatal Venus star point at 16 degrees. Mm-hmm. Of so Gemini. there's
1: another mm-hmm. mark on your Gemini star. Oh, man, nice. <laughs> this is working
0: pretty well. Yeah, I'm a little, a little unsettled. I prefer, I prefer, it's working
1: too well. Yeah, <laughs> I prefer
0: my astrology not to work that well. <laughs> little bit more ambiguous than that.
1: <laughs> well, you moved into the studio on and off here. Yeah. So
0: we'll see what happens. People will come back to this episode later and when whatever happens happens.
1: Right. <laughs> right, right. All right. Make sure you let me know what's going to happen on this Venus Star Cycle bet- okay. between now and next March. <laughs> all right. Well, if it's bad
0: though, then I'm gonna have to blame you and like shake my shake my <laughs> oh, fist. Oh
1: <laughs> no! Don't blame me. Blame, blame Venus. Don't blame Venus. Venus either. Venus doesn't like to be blamed. <laughs> okay. Um,
0: all right. So people can find out more information about you on your website, which is uh dot com, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And then um, you do you do signed copies of your book, right? Right. So people can get a signed copy by going to your website and they can order it through there.
1: Yeah. If they order it from Amazon, it won't be signed. But if they order it from my website, it will be. I can mail it out to them.
0: And you also do a a shorter PDF version of the book as well?
1: Yeah. But that doesn't have all the astronomical graphs and all the mythology and all the charts and all the diagrams of how the the mechanics of the star work. Mm -hmm. Because I felt like in the Venus Star Rising, it was very important for astrologers to for me to lay down the astronomy of it, you know, because I didn't want people thinking, you know, did you make this up? I mean, I I've, right. I've had some people ask me, did you make this up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you invent this? No, I just took what was already happening and kind of brought it down and put it into some kind of context mm-hmm. of how do how can we work with it? And that's really how those examples you just showed. You know, okay, Mm -hmm. I'm a Gemini star point, and, you know, it's been going over my Venus, and I've had love in my life for now, this 12 year period. And I did this. I published my book. I started my podcast. I, you know, it's Mm just so those are not uncommon situations Mm -hmm. that when I start talking to people about it, that they can start looking at it and going, oh, yeah. Because I did that for me. And, you know, I have a different star point, but some of the most critical things that happened in my life, highs and lows, were on that star point return mm-hmm. or, you know, that sign return anyway.
2: Right. Okay. Right. And you go through this with people in consultations as well, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. If they
1: sign up for the Venus star point reading, that's, I can actually, we can map your whole life, your whole lifetime through the Venus Star and what what it's gonna affect and when mm-hmm. and things like that. Great.
0: Cool. Um so yeah, or so people can get that from you or from just Amazon to get the Venus Star Rising book. You also recently republished the or the mythic astrology books were recently republished with new covers, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That's great. That's exciting. So Yeah.
1: They're back in print again. They have been out of print for quite a while.
0: Mm. Okay. And that was just in the past year?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, all three books came back into print. second printings. Or for mythic astrology, it was about the seventh printing. Uh, that book did really well when it first came out, went through two editions and six printings.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so now do you think that was influential then on the community in terms of the adoption of the practice of mythic astrology?
1: I think so because whenever I would go to conferences, I would run into people from all over that would say "I love that book, you mm-hmm. know I've had that book since it came out, and I love it and thank you for writing it, mm-hmm. so that was always nice, yeah,
0: cool. well, people can find that on Amazon and um yeah, I guess that's it for for this episode, so thanks a lot for joining yeah, us thank,
1: thank you, for, you for having me. It's been great, and we made we did turn lemons into lemonade with uh the sudden cancellations of everything. So, yeah, thank yeah. you for. We're, we've all been flexible about this, and we all have to be flexible now with our lives and our plans over the coming months. And let's hope everything will be settled down by the time I'm back in Denver, which should be for the ESAR conference in September, mm-hmm. and that travel is back on board and everything is good again, and we can gather because how many people are going to be there? Like a thousand people. Yeah, you possibly. Know? Yeah. yeah, a lot. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. All right. Um, well, thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks, yeah. Lisa. Thank for you, co- Lisa. Co-hosting with me. Thanks for being
1: Chris. Here. It's been a pleasure being with you in person. Having watched so many of your podcasts from the from my home before, <laughs> from mm-hmm. my computer.
0: <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks to the patrons who supported. Uh, the production of this episode through our page on Patreon.com, and for all the people from the Denver Astrology Group that attended the webinar yesterday. So that's it for this episode, and we'll see you again uh, next time.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, and Marin Altman, as well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at AstroGold.io. The Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast is also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a major astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.